Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly dispatch from Brexit land. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the possible impact of Brexit on something rather fundamental, the food we eat. Now, almost every aspect of our food and the industry that produces, processes and sells it is likely to be affected by the UK's departure from the EU. Yet experts say the government has barely even begun to plan for it. To get an idea of how vast the potential changes to what we're all used to could be, consider some of these facts. First, food and drink is Britain's largest remaining manufacturing sector, worth about £28 billion to the economy. Second, across the whole sector, including farming, it accounts for 13% of national employment. Europe, which we're leaving, happens to be its biggest export market. And on the other hand, since we produce only about half of our food, imports from Europe also account for around a third of what we eat. Our food is also hugely reliant on EU labour, around half a million foreign workers, without whom British-grown fruit and veg couldn't be harvested or processed. And Britain's farmers depend on EU money too. Under the much-criticised common agricultural policy, they received a total of around £3 billion in support last year. That's more than half of all farm income. Likewise, like them or loathe them, harmonised EU standards, rules and regulations, and there are some 4,500 of them, covering food, farming and the environment, have made our food infinitely safer to eat and far easier to trade. And finally, membership of the EU's Single Market and Customs Union has accustomed us to seamless distribution, same-day delivery, exotic foodstuffs, stable supplies and reasonable prices. Now, what is going to be left of all that once we leave? It's clear we're not short of questions. Will our food run out? Will it get through customs? Will we still get fresh fruit? The fall in the pound since the referendum has already pushed prices up. How much further could they rise if tariffs are imposed in a hard Brexit? Are our farmers going to survive Brexit? Who's going to pick and process our crops? What's going to happen to food standards? And perhaps the hardest question of all, could Brexit actually be an opportunity to right some of the wrongs in terms of healthy eating and a safe and sustainable food sector in the future? 
With me to answer, or at least try to answer, some of these questions are a trio of what we on Brexit means are proud to call actual experts. Guardian special correspondent Felicity Lawrence, who's the author of two groundbreaking books exposing some of what's wrong with the food business. Minette Batters, who's deputy president of the National Farmers Union, the NFU, and Eric Millstone of Sussex University, the co-author of a recent report that concluded that the government was sleepwalking into a post-Brexit future of insecure, unsafe and increasingly expensive food. Now, there's plainly an awful lot, if you'll pardon the pun, to chew on. Should we start with perhaps the, the most burning question of all, which is the I suppose the security of our food supply and of our own food production. I mean, to put it bluntly, in the worst case scenario, will there be enough to eat after Brexit? Uh, now, Chris Grayling, um, who's the Transport Secretary, and so we're not quite sure how much he knows about agriculture, but he came in for a bit of ridicule recently when he said Britain could simply grow more food if we needed to. Minette, can, I, can we start with you? How, I mean, how realistic is that as a proposition? Can we simply grow more food? We certainly can produce more food, but there has to be long-term planning and and a commitment by government that you do not just flick a switch and it happens. Um, Our self-sufficiency at the moment is currently 60%. It's been gradually declining over the past 20 years. Uh, We are concerned about that. Um, There's huge potential if you look at the dairy industry to produce not only liquid milk, but be self-sufficient in milk products as well. Um, There's a massive potential to grow farm more of our fruit and veg. But we need a, a, a long-term government commitment in order to do that. We currently don't have any food policy on the table at the moment. We are about to see the launch of a 25-year environment plan. The commitment, cross-party commitment, I might add, to a food and farming plan in the 2015 manifesto, we have not seen sight of. So it, it's a big comment to make with, with very little commitment behind it. And are you confident that, after, as you say, after years of, of sort of, you know, very little uh, policy... Uh, Uh, coming out of Whitehall, are you confident the government is gearing up for for what might be needed? Well, Brexit is and must be a game changer for that. You know, as we consolidate into our own sovereignty, uh, we have a, a massive population, 65 million and growing. So we are a very densely populated country. We're an island nation in a very, very volatile world mm. now. So to not have robust food policy and a commitment uh, to where possible that we can be self-sufficient uh, is, you know, in every citizen's interest. And um, Brexit must be a game changer for those policies. Okay, um, Eric, we we know we, we've enjoyed a thanks in part, I suppose, to, to membership of the European Union. We've enjoyed relatively stable and secure food supplies for for, for many years now. How great a risk do you consider that Brexit could be um, to that very basic fundamental stability of supply? I am satisfied that the direction in which current policy seems to be taking us represents a very serious threat to food security in several respects, including the delivery and provision of sufficient supplies of food. Chris Grayling was subject to a certain amount of derision. (laughs) I think that derision was well-deserved. I mean, in, indeed, I might even go further and characterise my attitude as, as one of, towards him as one of contempt. I mean, yes, of course, the UK could produce more food, but 
not the wide range of foods upon which we have come to rely. Mm. Um, in the winter in this country, it's exceptionally difficult to produce anything other than potatoes, leeks, turnips and swedes. Um, if you want fresh food, th- the winter months would be pretty bleak. We have come to rely and expect a very wide range of foods at the times of the year when they don't grow in the UK. I mean, citrus fruit doesn't mm. grow at any time of the year in the UK. Mm. Um, a lot of fresh vegetables and salads grow, are only available in the summer. Uh, I think that the UK would be an unattractive market to export to uh, for many co- continental countries. And there are members of the government and members of parliament who say, oh no, we could encourage um, imports of food into the UK, we just cut all our tariffs. Well, we could cut tariffs, but doing so, we would wipe out (laughs) uh, UK farming. We could liberalise our agriculture and our markets, Mm. but that doesn't mean the European Union's going to scrap the common agricultural policy (laughs) or the US is going to abandon its very high levels of subsidies of its farmers. Mm. So I think um, that what we we risk with the current trend in, in policy is not just diminished supplies and increased prices, but I fear increased price volatility mm. and increased price volat- food price volatility has historically been known to cause quite a lot of, how shall I put it, social disruption. So I think there are really serious problems potentially on the horizon. Felicity, do you do you share that uh, that pessimistic view? Are we? I mean, are, are we? Going to, will it be a question of, of, of the British population um, eating less of what it's got used to eating over the last 20, 30 years? I think that was going to happen anyway. So in that sense, Brexit is just an extra shock on all the other shocks and that we've been very uh, complacent. I think governments, successive governments, have been astonishingly complacent uh, about uh, food security and food supply. Uh, the underlying philosophy, both uh, the Labour years and Coalition and Conservative years, has been that the market will provide uh, and, uh, and and with climate change and the growing global population that was already looking like quite a dodgy assumption uh, we've got you know China doing bilateral trade deals with Brazil taking up large parts of the soya and uh, maize harvest and so on um, uh, I think in terms of Brexit and how that affects us uh, given the sort of deafening silence from Whitehall on what the plans are. Uh, yes, I think it is a, a real risk. I mean, obviously, it depends how how hard a Brexit it is and when mm. we have a cliff edge. Uh, but but there aren't the optimistic signs about planning going on. As Minette says, farmers can't turn things on and off like a tap here. Um, but I think people also underestimate the extent to which the whole of our um, infrastructure in terms of processing, retailing, packing uh, has, has been the fruit of uh, EU agricultural policies mm. and regional development policies so that, you know, in the 70s, as Eric said, you know, we, we simply didn't have access to southern Spain for our, our winter months to provide this huge cornucopia of uh, foods that we expect to be there all the time. Um, and if you cut that off, you, you're, you're not only cutting off the 
the produce, you're actually you're actually going to have to look at the whole retail structure, which has invested everything into mm. these just-in-time mm. uh, global sourcing uh, arrangements that it, that look increasingly unsustainable uh, with climate change and uh, and prices. Mm. Um, and I think yes, Eric's right that uh, to some extent. Uh, British farmers, so long as they can make enough money to survive on the land, and and Minette, I know, will want to talk more about just how many farmers are leaving the industry because they can't make enough money. Uh, once you've once you've built over farmland or given it planning permission for something else, it's very hard to get back. So actually, we we ought to be almost going back to the war era where we're thinking, you know, should we be talking about maximising production? Yes, but. But who's who's organising that? No one. There's no leadership. Yes, and it, that's very far from the the, the sort of government uh, uh, mantra of you know all will all will be wonderful and we will head off into a glorious post Brexit future. Um, let, let's Minette um, go straight to that then. Um, this this question of, of of British farmers, the survival of British farmers, and particularly the question of subsidies. Now, I mean. That's clearly been, you know, it's got to be a major factor in the argument. The the government's pledged to maintain payments until 2020, I think. Is that, is that right? But what happens beyond that? And longer term, if if we do end direct subsidies, as the Treasury has sort of long been, you know, itching to do, what are the consequences for the for, for the face of British farming? What kind of farms will survive? What kind of food will they will they be looking to produce? Well, uh, this is where, you know, as, as Vicky's rightly referred to, this is where the political leadership is, is absolutely essential for the, the road that we're on. Mm. Um, it, now, if you look back, and I think we do need to look at the, the cap, uh, past and present, because it's taken many a wrong turning. But the, the reason, or one of the primary reasons for it, was that Europe was starving, and that was within living memory. Um and there are many lessons, I believe, to learn from that. Now, current day, your, your average UK citizen is investing 23p a day uh, into the CAP. We look at the value of food, you know, currently 12% of yours and my mm. annual income. Food has never been cheaper than it is today. Um, and a lot of that is because agriculture has been um, supported. It's been a long-term cross-party government commitment that food remains affordable. And and we would absolutely support that. You know, there's probably 50% of UK population that's having a really tough time, really struggling mm. to make ends meet. And that matters now as we go forward. This cannot be a policy about the privileged few. This has to be a policy that stacks up for everybody in society and, and farmers as well. Because I think what the British public really do value is the diversity of the country. You know, you look at, um, at the Northwest just being granted world heritage status down to the, the growing uh, capacity of Kent, um, Cornwall, mm. Scotland, the devolved regions. It's It's been a phenomenal success story. And I think the consumer wants to be able to continue to buy the variation. They don't want to see mono agriculture. They value small farmers. There are also some very credible, fantastic scaled up farmers, big farmers. So it's about a new deal with society. Um, 
And it has to happen if we are going to remain competitive with our, our European trading partners, which hopefully they will be. Um, I think we can have a new deal. I think a lot centres around the whole issue of food security and public goods. Now, you're hearing ministers talk about public goods and any economist will tell you that food is not a public good. Well, our food system is a public good, I would argue. And we have very high standards of food safety, of environmental protection, of animal welfare. Now, if those aren't public goods, I don't know what is. And we want to maintain those. So it's it's a new deal. We see three vital cornerstones. One is better environmental delivery. Two is, is volatility measures, really, that make sure the market functions because the market hasn't functioned fairly. And we also need to look at the challenges around productivity. Now, productivity across our whole economy is flatlining. And that is not about randomly producing more. That is about smarter farming. Um, we're already seeing very progressive uh, precision farming. We've halved our use of inorganic fertilizer, of pesticide. We're meeting the climate change challenges. Yes, we need to do more. We can do much more. And that's the opportunity. But this has got to be a, a new investment that covers those three areas. And I have to say, not just one area, when I hear ministers just talking about a green Brexit if we're going to deliver a green Brexit, you've got to look at, at volatility and productivity in order to deliver that. Felicity. Can I ask, Minette, I mean, it's three billion is the figure at the minute that comes from the common agricultural policy. Mm-hmm. Do you get a sense that that's what farming still needs and that the government will pay at that kind of level? Or if we switch to more... Um, public money for public goods are we down to the sort of tiny bit or the relatively small bit of uh, European money that at the moment goes into into those mm. types of goods uh, which is a fraction of the three billion if you look at the three billion that would actually run central government for two days so anybody that says we can't <laughs> afford to do it that puts it into focus that actually if we're going to feed this population and care for our environment we can and should afford to do it around the budget it everything is connected to the trade deal if we get a good trade deal we mm. have access full access to the European market then we can take a slightly different look. If we don't, this is repeal of the Corn Law politics, and we should be in no doubt of what that would mean. If we open our doors to flood our country with imported produce produced to much lower standards, it will, as has been said before, decimate British agriculture. So I think I'm loath to to put a figure on the budget. We absolutely should be maintaining uh, the budget because it is much needed for investment right across the UK. But it's all about the trade deal. That's what will... That's what will shape the landscape and the food system. OK, let's let's look at the trade deal a little or what kind of deal we might be, be heading for. The government at the moment at least seems quite determined to leave the single market and the customs union. Um, and that has certain inevitable consequences, doesn't it? Um, I mean, firstly, and I suppose most obviously, is the whole question of tariffs, um, and the, the, which will depend completely, of course, on the kind of deal that we get. The estimates, are, I mean, Eric, are there estimates for what could happen to food prices in the UK if, for example, we revert to trading on, on, on WTO terms? How important do you see the, 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 the actual detail of the deal? The detail of the deal will be very important, but not everything will be contained in the deal. That is, the UK will be able to decide for itself its own tariff policy. 
But before I address that directly, I would like to say something about subsidies. Mm-hmm. Well, put it this way. Farmers who need it least are getting most, and farmers who need most are getting least. <laughs> but also, in effect, they're subsid- putting most of the subsidies onto foods that people are already over-consuming, like um, fats and sugars, uh, and too little on foods that are under-consumed, namely sort of fruits and veggies. Mm. So I think there's a case for realigning UK subsidies that connects directly with nutritional policy. And here I think it's worth remembering a very smart um, instrument, set of instruments that was used in the UK before the UK joined the European Economic Community. And it used to be called the deficit payment system. Mm. So a target price was set for agricultural commodities. If the market price was higher than that, the farmers got the higher price. If it fell below the target price, the government made up the difference, but only for food for which they could find a buyer. And therefore it didn't generate surpluses. And I think the UK should revert to a system of that kind following Brexit. I think that would give us stable supplies and prices and stable incomes for farmers. Coming then to the um, tariffs, there is a stunning lack of clarity from the government. Um, Some say we should operate uh, with WTO, Mm -hmm. World Trade Organization rules. Others say, well, we can be a member of the WTO and we can scrap all our tariffs so that food can come into the UK at the lowest possible price. So as Felicity said, it will then come come, uh, uh, at the the lowest possible standards. And as both Felicity and, and Minette have observed, it will seriously undermine UK farming, um, which in turn will have serious adverse effects on the British countryside. So I think, though, to to come directly to the question you asked, which is, what will be the impact on food prices? And as you observed Mm. before, we currently, by value, import about 40% of our food. On average, the extra tariff, if they're maintained under the following WTO template would be an extra 22%. Hmm. So that's an extra 22% on 40% of our food, which means that on average, putting aside depreciation of sterling, we're going to be paying 10 to 15% more in aggregate for our food. food. That's a large chunk, isn't it? Felicity, I think 22% was a, um, that, that's the widely accepted figure, isn't it? That, that's the figure that, that people have calculated if we end up with mm. WTO and, and, and nothing else. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's a huge hike mm. in food prices. And, uh, you know, as Eric's made this extra calculation, if, our, if the average food bill is going up 10 to 15 percent a week, when you've already, as Minette says, got lots of people struggling now. Uh, now, I mean, there is a bigger question about whether you should be subsidising farmers uh, to keep food cheaper or whether actually you should be spending the money better saying we need people need to be able to afford food they need higher wages mm. uh, because if you artificially depress the price of food uh, you have this other problem that, that you, farmers can't survive so i mean you know I, I, 
it's not quite straightforward. I don't think we should be just thinking in terms of keeping food so prices subsidized low. that it's yeah. low. Because yeah. historically, food prices are, are At their lowest, they low. extraordinarily yes. low. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but of course, for the lowest 10% of the population, the people who are really struggling, mm. they spend a much higher percentage of mm. their income on food. Mm. So 12% is the average, and, and you and I would be spending something like that. But for the really people at the bottom it's more like 25 percent. so it's a huge thing and and, and we know people go hungry so the i mean the consequences then of the precise kind of deal brexit deal that we do end up with could could really uh, have a large impact on 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 people's weekly shopping bill um and also i mean we referred to this briefly at at the beginning but 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 another thing that could really change is that the kind of foodstuffs that we might be eating felicity you you referred to the sort of you know citrus from southern or all sorts of other food and veg that we get from from southern europe now and a lot of that relies on this this very complex sort of just-in-time distribution chains uh, um sort of you know same-day delivery for the most sensitive uh, uh perishable goods and one of the consequences of course of leaving the customs union would be that we're going to end up with 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 some kind of customs checks um at uk ports um, people have been talking about delays of, you know, even delays of up to sort of seven twenty minutes would make would have a, you know, result in in massive queues of of lorries outside Dover. The, how much does the food industry, our food, the food that we consume here in Britain, depend on those systems, um, Felicity? And and what delays? What could the consequences, even the smallest delays, be? We depend hugely on them. I mean, our whole current retail structure is built on this just in time from wherever, wherever it's cheapest, easiest mm. for, for the retailers to get from. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's freedom of movement of goods as well as people within the union. So all those customs checks at the moment are shared with all these mm. other countries. And, and it, that's just one of the big black holes. You don't have a sense that anybody's understood how it works um and it's not the first time this has happened i don't know if you remember the fuel strike where we very nearly ran out of uh, out of food Mm. uh, after 48 hours or so and the government had to be taken around some of these just-in-time factories and told how it worked because they simply didn't get it and i i suspect that's where we are now with this and add into that that we are busy slashing hmrc jobs Mm. so just at the point and this applies right across the board with all the regulators just at the point that we need many more people if we are really going to take back control of all this we're going to have to do it ourselves Mm. it won't be between 27 countries we're going to have to check all this stuff for Mm. safety for um, pesticide residues for chemical contamination as it comes in we don't have we don't begin to have the infrastructure the people to do that i mean okay yeah all right so a a potential for for mayhem there as well Um, and i mean another area where uh, minette it seems like the government may not fully understand (laughs) the consequences of, of 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 what it appears to be aiming for is the whole question of, of, of labour in, in the industry. Um, now, as I understand it, 500,000 EU workers work in the food and, and agriculture.
agriculture sector. One of the government's key objectives um, in, in these Brexit negotiations is to take back control of borders, to control uh, um, e- EU labour coming into the country. Um, do you get, I mean, how vital is that workforce to start with? Is it true that we, we simply would not be eating uh, British fruit and vegetable, vegetables without uh, e- e- EU labour? And do, are you confident the government understands the, the consequences of, of, of where it's heading? Well, there are two issues here. One is seasonal labour. So that is people that come here to pick, pack uh, our fruit, vegetables and flowers. Um, Now, that in total is about 80,000 people um, that come predominantly from Europe now to to do that. Um, But we knew five years ago that actually there was a shortage of people coming, despite the fact UK was always a preferred uh, destination. Um, we saw a shortfall um, that has been massively exacerbated now by the exchange rate, people mm. coming here earning less money and also feeling less welcome and uncertain. Uh, so the growers right across the UK saw a shortfall, people having to work longer hours, which, of course, is, is not good. And we, we really, really urgently need ministers to put a... Uh, seasonal agricultural worker scheme on the table to show that there is a commitment to the sector. You look at strawberries as an example. We're now self-sufficient in strawberries from April through to October. Um, Every developed country across the world is rightly or wrongly reliant on, on bringing people in to do mm. those jobs and they, they come here they're fully regulated uh, they have a pension scheme when they come here that the employer has to, to set up and, and is the contributor to um, national living wage obviously uh, people are being paid over and above that now in order to get them coming here so mm. it's, it's very complex um, but it is totally regulated we know who's coming here we know how long they're here and we know they're going home again we need the certainty then if you look at permanent workers We're predominantly foreign-owned processing, so a lot of that Irish-owned, Dutch-owned. One in eight people in the UK is working in food and farming, but pretty much 80% in processing is from the European Union. Hmm. So it's not to say that we can't find a solution, but it will take time. Um, Our education policies have driven people away from those jobs. We've had a high achievers education policy from both Labour uh, and Conservative governments uh, that have been about encouraging people to go to university. So we need to address There aren't British people who want to do those jobs. Well, we've we've pushed people uh, away from from doing uh, jobs in hospitality and care from doing things, mm. really, from making things. Now, that can change, but that's going to take it's time. It's going to take time and it's going to take government Absolutely. initiatives and planning and, and incentives. And, and just one final thing, unemployment is the lowest it's been since 1975. So we actually, on current rates, we simply do not have enough people in the UK mm. to do those jobs mm. at present. Mm. Felicity, briefly, if you can, on this Yeah, point. no, well, this is where I don't agree with Minette on her analysis <laughs> on labour. Um, uh I mean, it clearly was one of the key drivers of the Brexit vote. Um, and there are various, uh, what I would describe as myths that are put about. So this this, this idea that, that everything is seasonal labour, and that's why we need foreign labour. Actually, the seasons, as Minette said, are so extended now. You know, There is no reason why that proportion of people need to be on seasonal contracts without security. I mean, one of the things that drives English people, local people, away from those jobs is that they've become 
more and more unpleasant. They're terribly badly paid, uh, and uh, and there's the, the the whole system has been set up around. Uh, extreme flexibility of labour, uh, which makes it very hard to do those jobs with, uh, and have some kind of settled family life. Um, and I think the thing with Brexit, I mean, clearly there will be a crisis in labour, and it's astonishing that, that half a million people are needed for jobs, uh, including uh, meat processing, packing, that, that, you know, they're year-round jobs, they're not, they're not temporary jobs. Um, uh, and one of the opportunities with Brexit is to actually address... Uh, the deterioration in conditions in those in those jobs and try and change how attractive they are to a broader range of people uh, and pay is obviously a very crucial part of that and this is where I mentioned earlier that it's not quite straightforward the argument about whether prices should be kept low I mean one of the problems is that they're too low in fact to actually pay to allow what people should, to pay yeah, uh, okay. and to allow people who so are working in the industry to actually eat the food they're producing that's maybe one area where yeah where we can see an opportunity then let's let's move on Eric I'd come to you if I could about this this another hugely important topic regulations and and food safety and standards um, in the food industry, which clearly hugely important. Um, we know that this government uh, or certain members of this, this government have have said that they see Brexit as a, you know, an opportunity for a sort of a bonfire of the red tape. Now, how confident are we that EU regulations that now there and there are more more than four thousand of them that cover everything from sort of labelling requirements to veterinary medicine and they, they've basically kept British food safe uh, and they've ensured, for example, sort of animal welfare over over the last few decades. How confident are we that those will be man- maintained? No, there is no basis for confidence at the moment. Uh, Ministers are providing conflicting signals. When asked on the Andrew Marr show whether he would agree to a free trade deal, for example, with the USA, if it led to declining food safety standards, Michael Gove said no. Hmm. I was surprised he gave such a a straight answer to a straight question. (laughs) But other ministers have said things that contradict him. And at its most bizarre... Um, when uh, on the Treasury Commons Treasury Select Committee, when cross-examining the um, director of the National Institute for Social and Economic Research, Jacob Rees-Mogg asked, "Well, you know, saying that well, the, the UK is obviously ludicrously overregulated. He couldn't see why we shouldn't have the same safety standards as, for example, those that prevail in India." Hmm. Well, the idea that the the British public is ready to accept the same frequency and level of Delhi Belly, as it's called, in Devon, Dunstable and Dundee, as prevails in Darjeeling. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, My view, frankly, is that UK food standards and EU food standards could be a great deal better and should be a great deal better. Now, I I think that food standards... are higher in the UK than they were previously in the before the um, EU standards were imposed than they were in the UK before EU standards were harmonised. So the EU is contributing to maintaining standards, though as I say, I'd, mm. I'd like them to be higher. But there is a very serious risk that once the UK is out of the EU, the, those 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 standards will slide. How? 
important because those standards aren't I mean they're not just important for food safety are they they're also uh, uh, extremely important for trade um, a, a word about that I mean it's, it's been the harmonization of those rules and regulations and standards that has allowed uh, uh, you know British Brit- British food exports to happen uh, to take place as, 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 as seamlessly as they do uh, are you concerned that those standards will slip and what the consequences might be that for, for, for Britain's exports well as you rightly say the harmonization uh, has been a successful and uh, we've led a lot of that certainly on animal welfare we sit in the in the top quadrant in Europe and we're really proud to to do that um the danger is that as as we potentially open up our doors to other countries uh, with lower standards with different methods of production um you look at the countries south america argentina uh, within that, that have totally different standards. Access to full GM welfare is, mm. is something that just for their consumer base is not a requirement. And that is the situation in a lot of the Southern Hemisphere production. And my greatest fear is that we export our production to other countries. And so our standards are everything. You know, we have very good certified schemes in the UK. If you look out for Red Tractor, the logo for the leaf mark mm. for RSPCA, Organic, the Soil Association, you know, you've got good opportunities, whatever your budget, to be able to buy very safe, very traceable food. Now, if you undermine that and bring food in from other parts of the world, how does the consumer know, A, what they're buying? Mm. You know, they want short, safe, secure supply chains. And, of course, we shouldn't forget that the, the retailer, the market, has driven what we have now. You know, the, the market has demanded it. So government has not had much of a say in all of this. If anything, they've allowed the major retailers to dictate the food system. And actually where we are now, it is a very robust, very safe food system. But my goodness, if you changed uh, the rules on trade, it could be very, it very could different. Get, yeah, it really yeah. could deteriorate. Okay, um, we need to sort of begin to wrap up. Um, let's, let's briefly, if we can, look at finally then at uh, um, this question of you know, could could Brexit actually offer an opportunity to the to the to the food industry? We've touched on it uh, briefly. Felicity, um, you know, as I said, you've you've, you've written enormous amounts about <laughs> two books, particularly about the about the monstrosities that uh, you've uncovered in the in in the food business. Where do you see the the principal opportunities lying? Well, if you judge a food system uh, as successful or not on the basis of whether it feeds the people it's aiming to feed in a way that keeps them healthy and well and protects the environment uh, and is future-proof, uh, we are we are pretty much failing. We're, uh, we're suffering from uh, epidemics of diet-related disease and obesity, uh, and we've got... Uh, Farmers under intense pressure, large numbers of dairy farmers, for example, have left the Mm. business because they can't make money. We've got uh, the poorest uh, struggling to afford food uh, and very low wages in the sector. Um, So if you're rewriting it, I mean, if if the shock to the system gives you a chance to rewrite it, that that should be an opportunity. Um, And you could do all sorts of things. You could redirect subsidies uh, to 
the things that we actually want people to eat. Uh, you could uh, make sure that we have a diverse farming base. Uh, and again, that's a question of how subsidies are redirected so that they don't get gobbled up by the, the uh, largest landowners, but they're actually supporting a, a whole range of farmers so that when climate change hits, when uh, we find that trade doesn't supply the needs we have, mm. that actually we've got, our, we've got a much stronger base uh, of our own. Uh, and you could you could look at bringing in all sorts of requirements in terms of labour uh, and, dare I say it, going back to some of the things they've unwound, like the Agricultural Wages Board that protected workers and made it more possible for uh, local workers to actually have mm. a decent kind of living within that sector. Uh, and all of that is kind of, we need to do all that anyway. We need to do that because of you know, the crisis of climate change. Mm. Uh, and Brexit could be the opportunity to rethink seriously. It depends on whether the the government's listening and, and actually is prepared to put aside its ideological baggage it's, to actually exactly. think differently. And, and prepares, it requires a bit of strategy as well. Eric, briefly, if you could, do, do, do you think there's an upside? Potentially, I think there's a considerable upside. I agree with what Felicity was just saying, that this could be an opportunity for raising standards across the board, uh, better quality food, safer food, better employment conditions in agriculture and food processing, um, better standard of living for, um, for for people in the economy so that they can afford mm. uh, decent food, which in turn would make farmers less reliant on subsidies. Um, but uh, it would require a radically different um, approach to the economy and society than the one that seems to prevail at least in some <laughs> of what ministers say. I mean it is so difficult to attribute a clear position to Her Majesty's government at the moment as ministers uh, are, are disagree on, on almost everything. On almost yes, everything. Yes. But, but put it this way none of them seem to be articulating the opportunities that Felicity and I highlighted. But one thing I would add to what Felicity said, I think in order to transform the food system in one that was much more um, secure and sustainable mm. would require breaking the power of the very large uh, food retailers and food manufacturing corporations who currently are far too dominant in the system. Okay. Um, final word, Minette, with, with, with you. Um, are you confident of a... Of a, of a bright Brexit future? The opportunity is there. And, and from my point of view, representing 50,000 farmers across England and Wales, you know, we have to, to look at this as as the solutions about what we have to offer. And I think if politicians could look at this as a business and look at what solutions are needed and take the politics out of it, because it's got to have cross-party support as we come back to a new policy, um, then there are massive opportunities. But it, it means change in our health system. It means change in education. Um, it means really, as Felicity said, that tackling climate change. I, I see farmers at the forefront of many of those challenges. We're looking after 70% of the UK. Um, 
this is our opportunity to show that we can make a difference and we can do it differently. So yes, without doubt, there are opportunities, but we've never needed a bold plan like we need it now, a new strategy that really focus on the essentials. Right, yes. And some would say we've rarely seen a government that looks less likely to come up with it but time will tell I suppose on that well thank you very much that's it for this week my thanks to Felicity Lawrence to Eric Millstone Minette Batters for joining me today please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers join the discussion on Twitter you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts if you want to get in touch it's Brexit Podcast that's all one word Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com till next week I'm John Henley the producer was Rowan Slaney this was Brexit means and thank you very much for listening For more great podcasts from The Guardian just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.